0: As part of our community lifetime, each Sunday we try and, and uh, highlight something or an uh, aspect of our community or share stories. and, and I want, Last week we had some testimonies from Guatemala, and I wanted to make a small plug today. Um, just as part of our ongoing life together is, is really supporting each other and loving each other, and I wanted to let you know that, that part of the way we operate is we're not a high-budget, high-dollar operation. And uh, a lot of the musicians and guys that we have up here do it because they love Jesus and because they love our community. And, and Don has been part of our community for, I mean, longer than I have. He's been leading worship um, here. And, and Don has just released his uh, worship CD or a CD of his own stuff. And it's just a few songs. It's five or six songs on a little disc. It's awesome. I've taken a listen to it. And uh, it's really great. And, and, and he's selling those. We're not looking to make a fortune to I me. Mean, I think Don's selling them for like $5. And so uh, I don't think he's going to support his wife and, and uh, change his whole direction. Um, but I want to let you guys know those are available. Don has them, and he'll kind of hang around the community life table if you want to pick one up. If not, on our community email, I sit out the Facebook link. You can listen to some of those things. That's just by means of saying, hey, we're not looking for you to, to give all your money. But just if you, if you want to support the ministry of our uh, of some of our, uh, our community members. Um, that's kind of one of the things that we have going on. Plus, Don has got an incredible heart for Jesus and an amazing story. And if you ever get the opportunity just to sit down and visit with him and, and see him as not the guy that, that leads worship, but instead the man that loves Jesus, it's, uh, it's really remarkable. So he'll be around um, today and, well, hopefully forever um, to do that. So, um, You know, I was struck. It was years ago. Oh, I guess it was probably six years ago now. I was living in Austin, and I had just done this church event, and it was late one night, and I went out with two of these friends to a restaurant after we had finished this kind of service worship thing, and it was late. And and Austin is kind of known for its quirky little all-night, late places, where that's where all the fun folks come out. And so uh, we were eating one night, and it was late, and our waiter um, just kind of asked us what we were doing and we kind of told him. I started telling him we were doing this church thing or whatever. And we got in this long, drawn-out conversation about Jesus. And our waiter was, you know, dreadlocks down to his waist and covered in tattoos. Just didn't really look the part of, like, what you would think a typical church person would look like. But we got in this conversation about Jesus. And, I mean, it was like we were connecting on on all these amazing points and things. And we were talking about Christ and Jesus, the teacher and philosopher and stuff, and, and was just this. I was thinking, here we are having this incredible conversation with this guy. But then everything took a really funky turn when I mentioned, and I started shifting the conversation from Jesus, philosopher, teacher, to Jesus, redeemer, son of God. And everything got a little bit different. And then for, for about 10 minutes, our waiter stood there, and he rifled through books and people and authors and, um, and, and thinkers and, and he rattled off all these ideas about how Jesus really couldn't be God's son and how it, you know, it just didn't fit the structure of who God would be to have this son that would do all these things. And, and he went through this whole thing and we just listened and listened and listened and listened. And finally he came to the end of this thought pattern and he just stopped. And he stood there in silence for what must have been a couple of minutes. And then he said, he said man, I, I respect you. But it just doesn't make any sense. This Jesus, Redeemer, Son of God doesn't make any sense. Two weeks ago, I was standing in this little tiny store in Guatemala, sharing the gospel with a shopkeeper. It was a, a, I could touch both side walls, so it was real little, and I was standing there at the counter, and he's kind of selling people things as they come in and out, and we're sharing the gospel, and he's telling me that his whole family are believers, all of them. His uh, wife and his, uh, his, his mom and dad and all of his family are believers. And we go through this whole thing and we have this deep conversation and we get to the end of this conversation and he says basically this, it just doesn't make any sense. I just can't believe in that kind of God. I've been struck by the gospel over the past, oh, I don't know, year. I mean, but really recently have wrestled with This idea and notion of the gospel that turns the world upside down. What is it about God that doesn't make sense to our rational minds? What is it about a God who loves us in this capacity that makes our, our rational way of thinking just absolutely turns it upside down? I started thinking about these conversations. I don't know why the Lord brought them to my mind. This is this waiter conversation from years ago and this, this little Guatemalan shopkeeper and how similar they were in their structure of thinking. And then I was spending some time with the Lord and I came across that section in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we're going to spend some time today, where, where, God is, where Paul is actually talking about the, that the things of God are foolishness to the world. And it all kind of started making somewhat a little clearer sense to me. And I thought that today what we would do is we would explore the message of the cross, the wisdom of God, and our absolute need for Jesus. Because from a rational thinking standpoint, God is off the charts crazy. Like it doesn't make sense why the God of the universe would redeem mankind this way. Why God would come and wash the feet of humanity. Why God would die for my garbage why God would even love me I mean it doesn't make sense and I thought back to that conversation with that waiter where he just rationalized in his mind all the reasons why God couldn't be this way and I thought this is an interesting place for us to start talking about the gospel today if you've got a Bible which they should be kinda of sprinkled around you on these little little tables there we're gonna be in the book of first Corinthians chapter 1 if you've got your Bible, I want you to, uh, to get there. Um, we're going to spend a little bit of time there this morning, First Corinthians chapter 1. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago or a month ago, or actually I don't know how long ago it's been now, it's been a while, but we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We talked about the division that was happening in the early church. We talked about that some of the, the church members in, in Corinth were saying that they follow Cephas or Peter, and some were saying I follow Apollos, and some were saying I follow Paul, others were saying I follow Christ, and, and Paul in chapter 1 of Corinthians is really addressing this sort of kind of thing that's happening in the church. I don't know if you remember that or if any of you were here, but, but we talked about that. And, and this section in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is coming on the heels of that. So Paul is dealing with this this kind of approach by the people to rationalize and understand God from a human way of thinking. They were trying to identify the things of God with a human person. So they're saying, I identify with Apollos, or I identify with with Cephas or Peter, or I identify with with Paul. And Paul's actually addressing this crowd, this group of people, this group of Christian believers living in the middle of the secular world from the mindset that says, our rational understanding will never land us on God's infinite wisdom. And so we got to keep that in context, context to understand this morning that, that our text is coming on the heels of Paul explaining to the church that they can't attach the things of God to human things. The things of God cannot be attached to our human way of understanding. God is just, well, he's just too big. So, the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, is where we're going to be. Paul's just wrapped up kind of this thing on the division that's happening in the church of Corinth, and he's saying, listen, You can't ascribe the things of God to the things of of mankind. They just don't fit in the same categories. So before we get there and we open up and read it together, let's just pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place together. We thank you that you are a God who is living and active. God, we thank you that you are a God who is real, that you are more real than the air that we breathe. God, that you're that the incarnation, that Jesus coming and walking on earth is a radical collision between heaven and humanity. That God, it was an inbreaking, And God, that so often in our lives, we try and, and categorize you into our, our, our train of thoughts. We try and make you and the way you work fit into our understanding. And we make a God that is way too small. So this morning, Father, I just ask that you would break our boundaries. That you would break our concepts of who you are and how you work in the world. That you would shatter our thinking about a small God with a glimpse into a God that is infinitely bigger than anything else we could fathom or imagine. Take just a moment in your own heart and just pray. Ask God that God would do something just real and powerful in your life, that he would teach you something today that's specifically for you. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, or behind you. Just pray that God would, would move in their life today. God, we love you. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, so as we open your word together, God, teach us um, in a miraculous way that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 18, we're going to read a, a kind of long section of this, and then I'll, I'll just kind of, we'll just kind of open it and work through it, because I want us to hear it first, because I think it, it makes sense if we can put it in its context. Verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise." The intelligence of the intelligence, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this day? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. You know, I started thinking about this idea, of the message of the cross. And, and the message of the cross is one of those things that we, we quickly can complicate. We can complicate it with all kinds of thinking. We can complicate it with all kinds of kind of undue theology. There's been volumes and volumes written on, on what was really taking place at the cross and what the message of the cross is. But Paul says this. Now the church, remember, is wrestling with these divisions. They're almost split from within. They're having these heated debates over who's right, Is it those of us that follow Paul? Is it those of us that follow Apollos? Is it those of us that follow Peter? Is it those of us that say we're the only true Christians? We follow Christ who is right. And Paul says you're thinking about your your relationship with Christ from a standpoint of the world and here's the problem. He says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And I started thinking, what is the message of the cross that is foolishness to the world? What is it that takes this this waiter friend that we met and makes him look at this idea of Christianity and Jesus and say, it doesn't make sense? What is it that makes this shopkeeper a world away in Guatemala say, this is crazy. I can't believe in that kind of God. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's really not that big a stretch for us to think that this is a little bit nutty. I mean, think about the cross itself. I mean, it was an instrument of torture and death. It was an instrument not only used to murder, but it was an instrument used to make an example of. If they wanted just to kill you, the Romans wanted just to kill you, they'd kill you. But if they wanted to make an example of you and torture you to death, they would hang you on a cross right in the middle where everyone could see, and they would leave your body hanging there as an example of what not to do. If you cross the Romans, if you break the law, this will be your fate. Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha, which means "a place of the skull. It was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. What kind of God does this? What kind of God creates a world this world, this humanity, these stars, these trees, and then walks on it and dies on a garbage dump as the only way to redeem our sin? What kind of God stoops and scrubs the dirt off his disciples' feet? What kind of God doesn't dine with the wealthy and the wise but instead hangs out with prostitutes and people the rest of the world despises? What kind of God touches people that no one else will even touch because of their uncleanliness. I started thinking about the message of the cross, and I started thinking that it's really not all that complicated. I mean, we quickly give it its undue complications, but really the message of the cross to me, and I think really simplistically, for those of you that know me recognize that I am not a bright guy, but I think in simplistic terms, the message of the cross to me is really just about two things. It's about God's extravagant love and our desperate need. And I started thinking about the cross itself, the vulgar nature of what it was, its instrument of absolute torture and death, the fact that our God, my God, the God that Psalm 139 says knit me together in my mother's womb, the God that died outside of town in a garbage heap for the stuff that I did yesterday and the day before and today and tomorrow, for the stuff that I wish no one ever knew that I thought, the God that died for that makes no sense until you understand the extravagant nature of God's love. You see, the cross makes no sense until we understand the love of God. And I think back now to my conversation with that guy in that little cafe at one in the morning, and I, remember, I think, to me it makes sense now, that how could I understand a God that would die for me, a God that would, would bleed, a God that would be killed by his very creation that he made, And then call me to walk in that same way. How do I understand that or fathom that until I understand God's extravagant love? No wonder it doesn't make any sense. Because until I understand God's love, I can't understand the cross. It doesn't make sense. Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, it doesn't make any sense until we understand the extravagant nature of God's love, which begs this question, do you understand and know how much God really loves you? I think a lot of us in church today will tell you that we know God is love. We know God is love, and yes, God loves me, but I don't think many of us know the extravagant nature of that pursuing love. The kind of love that would drive the God of the universe to sacrifice His Son To be despised, betrayed, beaten, spit upon, so that he could redeem humanity. Because if we understood that kind of love, it would change our lives completely. It would turn the world upside down. It would turn our lives inside out. You see, the message of the cross really is about this extravagant love. It's impossible to understand it without it. The second thing the message of the cross is about is it's really about our desperate need. And I talked about this last week. We unpacked the gospel a little bit, talking about Guatemala and whatnot. But, but I talked about the gospel being in its nature that, that, that it, was, it was simple, right? It had a simplicity to it, that it had a relevancy to it, and it had an urgency. Our desperate need is the second thing that the message of the cross is about. And I talked about when I talked about that sense of urgency. that The Bible tells us that you and I are absolutely dead in our sin utterly and totally hopeless but see most of us don't want to believe in a God out of our need we want to believe in a God out of our convenience so when I have to come face to face that I am totally and utterly helpless it it really messes with everything I've been been built to be in our culture because I never want to admit my helplessness I never want to admit that I can't do it Because we're raised from our infancy up to be able to do things, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to when things get tough, we just get going. We are not a society that admits that we are desperate, broken, and in absolute need. And our churches are filled with people that wear the masks, hiding what we desperately don't want other people to know about us. When we come face to face with our desperate need, the fact that we are dead in our sin and there's nothing that we can do, the cross begins to make sense. And it's hard because a lot of us have been raised in families and in places and in cultures where we have no need. I don't want food, I don't want shelter, I don't want whatever. What need do I have? And until we're confronted with our sinful nature, I don't know my need. I mean, really. And then Paul's words started really penetrating my heart. And he started saying, that as he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, you can't understand, from a worldly standpoint, the message of the cross. Until we understand God's extravagant love and our absolute need, And the crazy thing about it is that we can't understand those things on our own. I've said this about a dozen times, but it's worth saying again because I think it's important. But I had a philosophical theology professor in seminary, and he was a mess, and we disagreed on pretty much everything about life and Jesus and whatnot. But he said one thing that has always stuck with me. He said, you know, I've spent 25 years of my life, with a Ph.D. and whatnot, studying the greatest minds of all time, reading everything there is to be read. And I've come to two conclusions about, that are absolute about anything. Everything else is up in the air. And for him, it was up in the air. Everything was up in the air, including, was Jesus you know, the, the only way to heaven, yada, yada? And he had a ton of crazy things that he kind of bought into. But, but he said, these are the two things that I believe to be absolute. One, God does exist. And two, my rational mind didn't land on that. In other words, what he's saying is, God is real. And the only reason I know God is real is because God showed me. Because all my reading and all my thinking can't get me there. See, revelation begins with God showing us. It's God's invitation. It's God demonstrating. We can't understand the message of the cross until we understand God's love. And that has to be revealed to us. And so standing here with this waiter, I recognize now... That the cross is crazy to the world. Until God reveals to us how much he loves us and our desperate need, none of this stuff makes sense. I mean, it sounds absolutely crazy to the world that that we would forego things in our life and give money away and and, and try and follow Jesus and touch people that that we shouldn't have anything to do with, that we will love in a kind of crazy, God-filled, radical way, that I want to spend my time hanging out with homeless people And seeing the world differently is not because that's who I am, but it's because what God has done in me. You think this is the best way to make a living for my family? Absolutely not. But I'm compelled. I don't have a choice because God is so moved in me. I'm a prisoner of his love. And I didn't come to that on my own. God wrecked my life absolutely wrecked my life the message of the cross is foolishness listen to what paul goes on to say he goes on to say this to the church he says where's the wise man where's the scholar where's the philosopher this age you know the wise man was really just a reference to the gentile philosopher both the roman and the greek kind of of philosopher and at that time biblical times you know philosophy was a huge deal I mean, you guys know your, your understanding of Greek philosophy probably, but it's a big deal. I mean, people coming out of the line of Socrates and whatnot. I mean, Greek philosophy was big, and the Roman philosophers were equally as big at teaching and thinking. He says, where are these philosophers? Where's the scholar? That's the Jewish teacher of the law. Where's the scholar, that that Jewish person that knows everything there is to know about the law? Where's the philosopher of this day, which was probably a reference to the Greek sophists. They were sort of traveling teacher philosophers that specialized in this long-winded kind of circular debate, which really never got around to anything but would take about a half a day, and they could argue all these different points and really end up at no place. Where's the Greek sophist? Where are these Thinkers. Has not God made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world in its wisdom didn't even know him. In other words, the world in all of its magnificent wisdom couldn't even know God. God was pleased with this foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Jews are saying, show us. And the Greeks are saying, convince us. But we preach Christ crucified. I love that. So the Jews are saying, show us something miraculous and then we will believe. Give me a demonstration and I will believe in this Jesus or this God. And, and the Greeks, or the, the, those thinkers, those philosophers are saying, convince me. Show me a proof positive argument that God is real. And what does Paul say? He says, but we preach Christ crucified, which flies in the face of both of those things. He goes on to say this, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You know why Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews? Because the Jewish people did not want to believe in a Messiah that would die like that. They wanted a political Messiah that was going to ride in a town on a stallion, redeem all of Israel and establish them as a nation again, and they would once again, the line of David, be a political powerhouse. But what does Jesus do? He rides in a town on the back of a baby donkey. And he dies for humanity. Absolute, total craziness. Stumbling block. I can't believe in a God like that. I'm a teacher of the law. I am educated. I've spent my entire life learning Aramaic. I can quote, quote books and scrolls of scripture at a time. I can't believe in a God that would ride in on a donkey and touch lepers. And the Gentiles, it is just absolutely crazy because no self-respecting or good person dies on a cross. The Roman cross was an instrument for criminals. You don't believe and put your faith and hope in a person that dies a common criminal death on a garbage dump outside of town. That's foolishness. You hold up the guys that stand in the city square, and they make great arguments, and they're dressed well, and they can convince you things with their wise and persuasive words. The people that are pacifists and stay away from any controversy, but are thinkers and are educated. Jesus was uneducated from Nazareth. The guy never even went to school. He was the son of a carpenter, and you're telling me that this is God? It's crazy. I mean, you see the mindsets of these people, stumbling blocks and foolishness. It's not that hard for us to really recognize what craziness this is. I mean, if God wanted to win people, why not put a giant, amazing, kind of perfect leader up on the throne and say, this is my son, and we will all worship him. And Jesus would be a, an incredible figure that we could all find a place to attach to. Educated in this and that. Da, da, da. But he's not. He's the son of a carpenter, raised by a carpenter. And he's hanging out with people that are an absolute mess. And the Jewish people couldn't get past it. That guy can't be the Messiah. He just can't be. It doesn't make any sense. And the Gentiles were the same way. You know what? We have our own philosophers that are smarter than that guy. But we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Listen to verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, meaning the emphasis is on God. God has called both Jews and Greeks. He has revealed to them. He is calling them. It is God who is doing the action. The Jews and the Greeks didn't stumble upon understanding of God. God has called them. But to those whose God is called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he's saying this, he's saying, listen, you want to know what wisdom really is? The wisdom of God, which would be the highest form of wisdom, is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate wisdom of God, the ultimate power of God. It means that Jesus is, is the answer, is the truth. And then in verse 25, one of my favorites is this, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You know what that tells me? It tells me that the wisdom and strength of God is absolute and totally incomprehensible. If the foolishness of God is better than the smartest thing I have to offer and the weakness of God is better than the, the greatest strength that I have and God has no real weaknesses and God is not foolish, then that means that the strength and the wisdom of God is absolutely incomprehensible. It's just incomprehensible. God is that big. It doesn't make sense. And that's actually a really great thing. Because if I could understand the ways of God, what would the ways of God really be? You see the argument that Paul is engaged in with people. And my waiter friend was waiting for his rational mind to land on an understanding of God, the brother's still searching. Because until God reveals to you his love and our need, it doesn't make any sense. God's The foolishness of God is wiser than our wisdom. I talked to a guy the other day who, a uh, very prominent fellow, had his own business and uh, God was really calling him to do something dramatic, and he was actually thinking about going in the mission field, selling everything, and moving to a different country. And he said that he sat down to tell his partners, and his partners just absolutely ridiculed him, throwing everything away. And I sat there visiting with this guy for a few minutes, and and basically he said this. He said, "They, they just didn't get it, and I couldn't explain it. And I thought, you know, isn't that really how God works in our lives? That on paper, some of this stuff doesn't make any sense. It's hard. It doesn't make any sense to walk away from my six figures, to move to Bangladesh, and say yes to God. I mean, who does that? At the end of the day, who really does that? But God works in these crazy ways, and the message of the cross does some pretty nutty things. Wrapping up quickly. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I love this because I am not wise. I am not noble. And I am sure not influential. Yet God decides to use me on any level as evidence that God is amazing. He's saying, listen, you're not as great as you think you are. Part of what we need to remember about the gospel is that God takes humans to convey the most important message ever told and most of us need to come to an understanding that we're not really as good as we think we are and we have these pretty inflated pictures of ourselves anyway we kind of play on humility a little bit because it's a Christian thing to do but really what we really all kind of think we're a little bit better than everybody else I mean the world from the world standpoint the, the robber the criminal the drug addict the whatever Paul's saying, listen, you're, you're not as great as you think you are. Because remember, the guys are in this argument. They're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Paul, so I follow Stephen. I've got it figured out. He's going, listen, you're really not that great. You're not noble, you're not wise, you're not influential. I mean, I have an ego blow there. But God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He chose the lowly things of the world to despise things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus Who has become for us the wisdom of God. Christ Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. It's really all about Jesus. And then the last thing he says there is he says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does your life boast about? I mean, when people look at your life, what does it point to? I mean, from a cultural standpoint, our lives point to the things we have. Cars and houses and stuff and things. Culture, our lives, we want our lives to point to, to maybe who we are, like what our career is, what we do, what our family name is, you know, those kind of things, kind of who we are. Sometimes culturally, we want our lives to point to what we've overcome, the hardships, the struggles, where I came from, yada, yada. But what if we recognize that the only reason we are anything or had anything was because of Jesus? That Jesus is, as Paul just mentioned, the wisdom of God. And that in that is our holiness and our redemption. That the only reason we are is because Jesus is. And he says that our lives should boast in the Lord. What is it that people look at your life and say, man, that guy is awesome. That girl is amazing. Why? What is it? What does your life boast about? You know, the gospel is a quandary. It absolutely doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to the world. But to those of us being saved, it is a very power of God. This morning, I want you to come face-to-face with a couple of things. One, I want you to come face-to-face with a God who is extravagantly in love for you in a way that is beyond your understanding and imagination. And that you have a desperate need for Jesus, whether you want to believe it or not, someday you're going to come face-to-face with that, and I pray that God reveals that to you. You need Jesus. But I also want you to come face to face with this. What does my life reflect? Does it reflect the world? The wisdom of the world? 25 years of excellence in whatever? Does my life reflect a non-noble, non-wise, non-influential person who just happens to be saved by Jesus and anything I have is his and because of him? I mean, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. To recognize that our lives, if they're anything, are because of Jesus. And that everything we have belongs to him anyway. And that he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And you see, the message of the cross messes the world up. Because that way of thinking is absolutely insanity. It's that way of thinking that caused the church in Acts 2 to sell stuff and give to people as they have need. It's that kind of thinking that caused the church in Acts chapter 2 to share everything. It's that kind of thinking that caused Peter and, and uh, James in, in Acts chapter 3 while heading into the temple to see the crippled person there and stop. While everybody else walked right by and placed their hands on him and healed him and changed his life. Because Jesus had called them to see the world differently. The gospel well, changes everything. God's extravagant love, our desperate need. And what does your life reflect? Let's pray.